Welcome everybody to episode 113 of the No Normal Show for Thursday, July 22nd, brought to you by Revive Health. And this is our weekly deep dive into how hospital and health system marketers can navigate what we call the no normal. And I am not Chris Bevelo. I'm Brennan Mason, VP of Strategy at Revive Health, subbing in for Chris as your host for the show today. I'm joined as always by marketing specialist and show producer Gretchen Smithson. Hello, Gretchen. Hey, good to be here. And we're also joined today by Shannon McIntyre-Hooper, Chief Growth Officer at Revive Health. And Shannon's a healthcare innovation enthusiast and student of healthcare's ever-shifting ever business models. As Chief Growth Officer and Interim CFO at Revive Health, Shannon is responsible for the agency's corporate strategy, growth, and finance functions. Her decade-plus of experience in health technology also positions her as a key subject matter expert and strategist for clients' complex communications and brand challenges. Shannon also proudly serves on Revive Health DEI committee to help instill diversity, equity, and inclusion in all facets of the business. Shannon received her MBA from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and is just an all-around cool person. Hello, Shannon. Hey there. It's good to be back again. And just some quick show notes before we dive in. On this podcast, we'll be sharing industry trends, research stories from those within and outside of, of within and outside of the industry and other ideas and content to help health system marketers navigate the no normal successfully. If you want to understand more about what we mean by the no normal key principles, check out our blog post, which Gretchen is sharing in the comment function. And just remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen to your podcasts. And we'll also be posting a recording of this episode at 11 Central tomorrow. And you can visit our website at thinkrevivehealth.com slash no dash normal for all things related to the podcast. Okay. Today, we're going to be talking about navigating a changed behavioral health landscape. So like everything else, COVID-19 has completely changed behavioral health care and nothing will ever be the same ever again. Uh, but specifically, COVID-19 has put a lens on three areas on the behavioral health care landscape. It's really exposed a change in how we need behavioral health care with increased rates of anxiety, depression, PTSD, and other types of issues like that. It's changed how we think about access to behavioral health care solutions uh, with commercial solutions filling in some of the gap and, uh, and uh, things like telehealth bleeding their way into behavioral health care as well. It's also changed the level of awareness for behavioral health care, giving institutions like corporate America and senior care solutions a little bit of a violent wake-up call uh, in understanding how behavioral health really, really bleeds into the overall health of the whole person. And some of these changes were riding what was already a worrying trend in the United States, at least, with before COVID so-called deaths of despair, things like suicides, drug overdoses, being seen as one of the primary drivers in lowering life expectancy or at best plateauing life expectancy in the U.S. And the mental health crisis starting to affect more and younger people, including a very worrying number of children under 13 or even under 10 experiencing some of these issues. Shannon, I know you and Revive have had an eye on this space since the get-go, and are you seeing trends on how different stakeholders are trying to address how this landscape has changed? Yeah, so short answer, yes, 100%. I mean, I think it's it's really interesting. It will be no surprise to our audience that the way that maybe some of the you know, government players like Medicare, Medicaid versus how health plans, kind of the insurer audience versus providers, you know, there's all sorts of different ways to tackle this issue. Um, and we can, we can talk a little bit about each of them. I mean, 
where where I would probably start is on the government front and looking at Medicare, Medicaid, but even also state employees. Um, and I think why that's an interesting place to start before we go way deeper into the provider space in a little bit is because this is an ecosystem that is actually properly incentivized in some ways to address behavioral health issues. Um, Medicaid is actually the single largest payer for mental health services in the United States. And it, it makes a ton of sense, honestly, um, because about half of all adults and children who are eligible for Medicaid actually have a behavioral health diagnosis. So a lot of states are actually implementing reforms, trying to find ways to actually integrate physical and behavioral health strategies. And you even alluded to this, Brennan, but, um, you know, folks who have behavioral health, mental health diagnoses or needs are way more likely to also have a lot of comorbid chronic and physical conditions um, and then are making a lot more intensive use of healthcare services. I mean, especially in Medicaid, you're looking at huge increases in um, emergency department visits, inpatient stays, clinic visits, like prescription drug uses. So there, there's a lot of incentive on that front to actually get ahead of this a little bit. Um, and then I think it's also interesting because it's not just about, you know, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, a really interesting example that I saw recently was city council members in Reno, Nevada, actually decided to spend the city's CARES Act funding on a contract with Talkspace. So, wow. yeah, which is which is wild, right? Like, so it, we, can, we can talk more about some of the like teletherapy players in a little bit, but basically Talkspace is one of these behavioral health focused telehealth platforms. And so now in Reno, and you know, who knows, maybe we have some people listening from Reno, but this service is free for any resident over age 13. Um, and Talkspace in general is looking a lot at the Medicaid and Medicare space. So there, there's a lot of cool innovation happening there because they're on the hook for those costs, right? Like they've got to find a way to manage it. Right. I, I agree. And I think with behavioral health, like we've seen in other other areas of healthcare that have become a little bit more value-based, financial incentives typically drive action. <laughs> Although, you know, mm -hmm. it's we I think we like to think it's all always altruistic, but it's pretty clear, you know, when we put some actual financial teeth behind doing something, it actually gets done. And, you know, I think it's it's perhaps a little bit easier for things like diabetes and heart disease, because there's a clear mm -hmm. path to how the disease progresses and the patient gets worse outcomes and you know, whoever's on the hook for the cost pays more. But it's a little bit more nebulous with behavioral health care. Um, and it's why, yeah. perhaps that's why it's taken a little bit longer to get to this point. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There's it manifests manifests in so many different ways for different audiences, different kind of spots along the care continuum. Um, I also think that there's there's a challenge when you're looking at the insurer audience. Um, I mean, there's a lot of challenges probably when you're kind of looking at that audience, but private health insurance usually covers um, you know more acute 
mental health services. So maybe short-term treatments, hospitalization, but rarely kind of to your point, that long-term or proactive management. Um, so that's just not something that's usually been tackled from a reimbursement perspective. And so there's these huge disparities that exist in both uh, network usage, provider reimbursement, when you're actually comparing behavioral health care to medical or surgical healthcare. And you know, some of the latest data is showing that people are five times more likely to have to go out of network for mental health care versus traditional care. And you know, obviously reimbursement, actually even for in-network mental health care providers is a lot lower than it is for, you know, say primary care services or something like that. Um, which I think then kind of begs this question of, okay, so there's all this variation in reimbursement across the private insurance space, but they're on the hook for cost too. So how are they kind of navigating that? And I think that what we're seeing is in in the same way as we're seeing it in kind of other parts of the healthcare industry, the payer strategy is to go vertical. So, you know, you've got either partnerships that are going vertical or acquisitions. So like Cigna is offering Ginger, which is another teletherapy platform as an in-network service, in-network service for all of its members. You've got, you know, Talkspace, who we mentioned, they're, they're covered by Cigna too and Humana and some of the blues. So that is definitely kind of how a lot of payers are going about this, which, you know, we, we can talk, I'm sure, at length about what that actually means for providers from a competitive perspective and from a brand perspective. But that's kind of the way that the, the payers are trying to get it sorted. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned verticalization and how providers can can act on this. And I think, you know, typically from the provider side, we've seen M&A as kind of the, the go-to approach whenever you need to expand services. Um, but, you know, recently there's been a lot of pushback from the government side on hospital mergers and acquisitions, mm -hmm. specifically on vertical mergers and acquisitions, which it seems like would be the playbook that a health system would use if they want to expand their behavioral health care capabilities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, given that and a perhaps increased resistance to vertical verticalization from the provider side, what other ways do you feel like hospitals and the, and the providers can can try to expand their services or try to just offer more here? Yeah. So, I mean, providers, there's two, two ways of looking at the behavioral health needs from a provider perspective. And I think that informs the best way to kind of answer your question. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got actually the need to provide behavioral health services to your own staff. Um, you know, everyone's super familiar with burnout issues from a like clinician perspective. And, you know, that's not just about what's happened in the past year and a half. Burnout has been a huge issue for nurses in particular for, for years, for decades probably. Uh, but there was a, a survey that was done through the CDC earlier this year, so not 2020, but like this year, which showed that more than 50% of healthcare workers reported symptoms of a mental health condition. Um, and so I think kind of that's that's one way that providers need to actually act on some of this. And, you know, that could be solved through, you know, potentially even partnering with some of the players in the digital health space, which we could maybe run through in a second. Um, or if they have those own services can internally, actually providing those to their staff. 
Um, but then that also begs the question of obviously like, well, what about what about patients? Um, and if if we've got this huge cohort of patients who, you know, have both a behavioral health condition and then also a, a comorbid kind of chronic or other medical um, kind of care issue, how do you actually provide some of those services to them that integrate the behavioral health support with physical care um, to ultimately, you know, improve outcomes, but also reduce costs and, and utilization and all those sorts of things, um, which has its own business model questions. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point about thinking about how we can better integrate behavioral health into all the other things already doing. You know, mm -hmm. I am going to go next month to see my PCP to get my annual physical. We're going to do blood work. We're going to talk about my cholesterol. We're going to do all the A1C screenings. But when it comes to behavioral health, maybe I'll check a few check boxes on a piece of paper that about how I'm feeling, but I, I'm probably not going to get asked any questions and there's really not any better screening that we're doing. It seems like we're just still very reactive when it comes yeah. to all things behavioral health. And if we want to be a little bit more proactive the way we are with almost literally everything else, then mm -hmm. we have to figure out how to better integrate this into all the other things that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, you're completely right. And ultimately, that is what's going to be required to, you know, to use a slightly cliche term, um, like bend the overall cost curve of what's happening from a chronic condition perspective. I mean, I, I think there's different there's different models for how to integrate behavioral and more like physical health. I think it's actually kind of interesting to look at the different digital health players here because they're approaching at it from all of these different angles. And you can actually look at a lot of their data and financial results and business model aspects to see what's working and what's not. So, you know, on the one hand, you have a lot of these digital health platforms, like just virtual care, telehealth platforms, like Doctor on Demand, Teladoc Health, Amwell, um, kind of just players who do a broad range of different types of virtual care services, but really leaned in quite heavily on the behavioral health front in 2020 in particular when there was such a need. Um, so kind of they're doing things on both the B2B and the direct-to-consumer model. So they're selling into health plans, employers, some of them to a lesser extent providers, especially those who are, you know, um, kind of adopting some level of value-based care reimbursement models. But then when you look at the specialized teletherapy players, so um, I mentioned both Talkspace, Ginger, there's a handful of others. When you look at them, they have almost entirely pivoted away from going direct to consumer. Um, they are finding that the demand is so great from an insurer perspective, from an employer perspective, from mm -hmm. a Medicare, a Medicaid perspective. Um, like Ginger ditched their direct to consumer line fairly recently. And then there was a, a great article on this in Modern Healthcare a couple of weeks ago about teletherapy. Um, and they showed some of the data on Talkspace, which is obviously one of the payments in this area, and basically said that while they have both a, a B2B, so a you know payer and employer uh, model and a direct-to-consumer model, they've really emphasized the B2B aspect. And I think that kind of starts to raise these questions for providers, which this can maybe kind of like pivot us back a bit in the provider space, um, of you know, what, what does this mean from a competitive perspective? And I know we've talked a lot over the past 
past many months, you know, years even, about how the competitive set for hospitals and health systems has really expanded uh, beyond obviously just the other regional health systems. It, like payers are starting to control so many aspects of this. And I think that that's the case here, especially from a brand perspective. So, you know, I think it would be easy to say, if I'm a health system marketer, it would be easy to say, we don't do a ton in the behavioral health space. So I'm not really that worried about the fact that Cigna acquired MD Live is partnered with Ginger and Talks, like it doesn't matter. But Cigna is rapidly repositioning themselves to basically own the whole health of their member of their consumer so that you know if i had cigna i could go to them for everything from this virtual front door type of offering to figure out where to go for primary care to my own behavioral health needs and it starts to reposition them in my mind as the the entity that i actually trust for the broadest swath of healthcare services yeah and i think that's I think short term, I can understand the logic, but I wouldn't want to give up any space you know, to payers because the trend is, at least from the provider side, you're going to be taking on more and more risk. I mean, mm -hmm. most people accept that. Some people don't. Who knows? I think that's almost certainly going to continue. Mm -hmm. And so eventually it's going to come back around. And now you've gotten two, three, five years down the road, you've taken on a bunch more risk. And now the insurers control everything that is helpful around the behavioral healthcare space and you have nothing, <laughs> you have nothing, yeah. I'm mean, not nothing, but you're not in as good of a spot as, as the payers are. So it's, it's, it's tempting to say, well, you know, that's not what we specialize in. It's not a high margin line for us. Other people are doing a good job here. We'll just let them do a good job. But I can see that being coming back around in a very challenging way, just a few years down the road. Yeah. I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, I think it comes down to this question of um, business model versus mission almost. Mm -hmm. So you know, when we think about it from a business model perspective for a lot of hospitals, I mean, I, th I think you're right in terms of the kind of reimbursement shift, but the reality is right now, fee-for-service is still mm -hmm. heavily dominant um, in most parts of the country. And then we already talked about how insurers have really spotty reimbursement um, approaches for behavioral health. So you could look at it from a provider perspective and say, that doesn't feel like a super clever investment for me mm -hmm. to make, you know, I like, how do I justify this from an actual business model perspective? So that's like one, one side, um, one side of the, of the coin. And, uh, you know, it's probably reflected in the fact that, you know, for a lot of these typical front doors to mental health for hospitals, it's kind of like primary care, ER, and there's not always a lot of kind of specialized knowledge on mental health in those settings. Obviously there are a lot of exceptions, we should get in a second to talking about some really cool stuff that a lot of hospitals are doing, but it's not the norm. Um, and then I, but then I think, you know, when you look at the other side of the coin, you've got this incredible, like mission driven nature of hospitals and health systems, this true, authentic, genuine passion and caring for their communities. And I mean, it's it's written into mission statements. It's like these institutions are, we are here for the community and we are here to support the whole health of the community. And then I think you can start to unravel that a little bit and say, all right, what, what does whole health mean? Um, and we've talked a lot about 
you know, social determinants of, of health and those sorts of things. But I think there's kind of coming this realization that health is both mental and physical. So ultimately, and, and this goes exactly to what you're saying, Brennan, of kind of the risk if we don't pay attention to this now. But ultimately, if hospitals want to be the go-to partner for people's health, not health plans, you know, not employers, like not, not anyone else, they have to focus on integrating behavioral health into, you know, ED and inpatient care, outpatient care, community outreach, literally every aspect of what they are doing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's, I mean, it's part of the larger fight of trying to be seen as the, the partner in care, like you were, like you were saying, and mm-hmm. that's another place where payers are really trying to say, Hey, Hey consumer, you know, I'm your partner in health. I'm your friend. I'm here to help you and try to get the provider seen as the place you go when something's wrong and you'll get a really big bill for it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's easier for the payers to do that because, you know, typically you're just paying a premium. Maybe you'll have some challenges with a reimbursement or something like that. You know, with the provider side, you go, you get these bills. It's, it's, it's hard. And I don't think they, like you said, I don't think they, you can give up ground here. I think you really have to, if, if you really want to say that you're a mission-driven organization Mm -hmm. and focusing on the whole health, you can't, you can't defer or delegate this to, to other places. I, I, I just, I truly believe that. Yep. I'm right there with you. So you, you mentioned, uh, Shannon, actually, let's talk about some of these other non-clinical solutions. I mean, I call mm-hmm. them non-clinical. I mean, talk space, I don't know what, I don't know if you call that a clinical solution or not, because you're talking to a therapist. I don't know. I don't want to get into whether or not that's clinical or not. Um, but thinking about things like Headspace, yeah. uh, Noom for weight loss <laughs> management, uh, a lot of these commercial solutions that have really stepped up to the plate in kind of an absence of a better option. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how, if you think there's a spot for those to be integrated into what some of these providers do when it comes to expanding their behavioral health care capabilities. Yeah, I do think that they have they have a space. I think where it gets concerning slash confusing is when they start moving up the kind of acuity levels. So, um, I mean, Headspace is almost a norm now for folks to have, you know, either the free version or like employers are basically sponsoring this thing across the country and like, you know, pushing it. But if you look at their marketing materials, it is super interesting. Like they talk about how meditation can be a solution for for mental health issues, you know, like how you can integrate aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy into it, you know, group meditations as a form of mental health therapy. And I think that's great, honestly. Like I'm, I am all for it because if that helps people, um, I'm a user of Headspace. I think it's a terrific offering. But your seat, you know, again, it becomes this aspect of seeding ground. So you know, as they start maybe trying to diversify up the acuity chain, like what what starts to happen then? So I think that actually there's a lot more partnership opportunities for those players to do in the provider landscape. Right now, they're so heavily focused on employers, but I think a really savvy health system would find a way to actually partner with them or with Calm and actually integrate it into their solutions for not only their staff, but even for patients. And that could be a really interesting expansion opportunity. Yeah. Have you seen Headspace's Netflix show? No. They have an interactive Netflix show. It's like a guided meditation. No kidding. Yeah, I had dog, no my idea. My dog loves it. 
the huh? shapes, the shapes and the sounds. It's really interesting. That is really interesting. interesting. I did not know. Oh my gosh. Oh, Gretchen says they also have a children's podcast. Gretchen, please link that in the comments for a friend. You know, I, I do, I do want to talk about how you're seeing some providers leading the way, but I want to mm -hmm. one more thing about reimbursement and it's just really interesting. I think we saw the addiction treatment space specifically kind of go through this a few years ago when it came to like the pushback against parity and how, you know, there's mm. payers saying there's absolutely no standard of care in addiction treatment. And I don't think that's applicable to necessarily the whole spectrum of behavioral health care. But from, you know, from the payer's perspective, I, I, I understand because, you know, we have very well understood standards of care and care plans for, you know, chronic conditions, acute conditions, but behavioral health care, I don't think we have quite gotten there. Um, mm -hmm. Every person, I mean, you talk about like individualized medicine, I mean, behavioral health care, I mean, good Lord. I mean, everybody's going to have a different experience. Some people can have mild conditions that are just treatable through, you know, pharmacy or to just treat mm -hmm. it through just talk therapy. Some people are completely not helped by either of those options. It's really interesting. And I think it'll be really challenging to try and if, if payers want there to be more standardization there, I think that's a big ask. I think it's the wrong thing to ask for. Yeah. I think that you kind of got to the root of the issues. Just, I mean, we talk about the need for personalized medicine in kind of broader medicine. Uh, but at least with that, there's aspects of really understanding, you know, DNA, all these kind of individual genomes, what that means for how different prescriptions are going to work for them. Now, I would argue that there might be some pretty meaningful learnings from that as well, especially for those who have kind of more acute mental health issues. I am not a clinician, so I can't speak to that really, but I, I think that there's going to be this shift towards personalization in all aspects of health, both physical and mental. But I think you're right. I think that kind of goes to the, the bottom line of why there's been such inconsistency in reimbursement is because there is not quite the same level of um, kind of clinical evidence that can be applied broadly to populations. And that's really what payers rely on for making a lot of their reimbursement decisions. So you're yeah. right. Yeah. And it probably is a little bit of double speak on my part. So I'll go out and advocate for all things evidence-based care, but you know, I'm here talking about you know, <laughs> headspace, which I don't know how much evidence has been put around headspace when it comes to, to the actual like clinical outcomes that it can, that it can help with. Yeah. Um, so Shane, I would love to hear, because I, I think you've got a, a few a few examples here of how some providers are doing some really interesting things here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're fortunate to actually work with a lot of hospitals and health systems who are making important investments in the behavioral health space. So so I think we can highlight a handful of those. Um, you know, one, and you mentioned early on the issue with very young children and adolescents who are experiencing a lot of these issues. I mean, I even saw some data recently, I think it was Seattle Children's who said that you know they had multiple children showing up on a daily basis um, from suicide attempts. I mean, it's just like, there's really horrifying and heart-wrenching stories out there about this. Um, one of our clients is Cincinnati Children's. Um, and basically, 
you know, they're doing a handful of things. One is from an actual inpatient facility perspective. So they just broke ground on a new expanded inpatient facility specifically focused on behavioral health and, and looking at a variety of different solutions across the care continuum, um, spaces for group therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, you know, recreational therapy, and also kind of looking more specifically into areas like um, neurodevelopment disorders. And one of the things I think is really cool about their work is they were um, just recently awarded a grant to actually pivot their suicide prevention efforts with a focus on telehealth. So specifically looking at kind of treatment options for adolescents with suicidal thoughts. And they're just doing some really, really, really impactful work in this space because you know, they're, they're seeing how it is impacting the children, the families in their community, and, and they're just not going to stand for it. So I think they're one really interesting one. Um, another totally different organization, Kaiser Permanente, um, obviously not completely analogous to, you know, all of the hospitals and health systems that we work with, but they've been doing some very cool work in this space too. Um, and we've been working with them on one of their latest mental health initiatives. So they did a lot of research um, in their market and realized a handful of things which I actually think apply more broadly to the U.S. So you already talked about how you know mental health issues of today's youth and you know it's far worse than previous generations and that's just pretty well documented at this point. Um, and then you know major brain development occurs between the ages of 10 to 25. So it's a really critical time to support mental health and wellness and be able to kind of get ahead of any potential issues. Um, and then some of the other research revealed that, you know, sure, progress has been made absolutely in reducing stigma around mental health. Um, but it's really hard for teens and young adults and their families to actually equip um, themselves and kind of navigate a lot of the complexities around where to get service, what that looks like. So so we did a lot of work with Kaiser to help them reach kids, reach teens, where they spend time, which is gaming and esports. Um, so the, the really cool initiative is basically Kaiser teamed up with um, this American esports organization called Cloud9 to create a mental health initiative that reaches 14 to 25 year olds and is really about, I think, kind of normalizing conversations around mental health, having gamers, esports athletes, gaming influencers actually sharing their own personal stories, talking about the struggles that they've had. Um, and then, you know, you kind of reference the evidence-based medicine aspect of it, you know, like where's the data? So Kaiser is working with the Public Good Projects to conduct a two-year longitudinal study to actually see what impact the program will have. Um, so we're watching that really closely too, because I think that could really help understand what are the the different ways even before a lot of these um, issues kind of fully manifest themselves to hopefully reduce some of that incidence. That's really that's really cool. And, you know, that's one place that I think we have actually made a ton of progress in the past yeah. I don't know, 10, 20 years is just on the normalization of these types of things. And I don't want to get into like a generational conversation because I think that's just a, a total minefield. But it <laughs> seems like, you know, uh, younger generations, I say younger, I mean, like 40 and below, mm -hmm. um, are much, much more open to talking about these things or even say, hey, you know, I talked to my therapist last week and they're great and they're fantastic. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about people like my parents or grandparents having those types of conversations. And I think they would just die before they talked about 
talking to a therapist. Completely. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, I mean, like many things in the world right now, we've made some progress, lots more progress to go ahead mm -hmm. of us. And it is cool seeing hospitals, health systems, IDNs actually kind of leading the way on this. Um, and, and there's one other example that I could actually share. This is going to be kind of me geeking out a little bit around technology. So just, Getting you know, yeah, it. I'm going to do it. Just fair warning. Um, so it's, it's some work that Hogue has done. Um, so Hogue last year partnered with a, a virtual reality digital therapeutics company called Behavior to actually deploy VR therapies to their frontline workers during COVID. Um, and so I think, you know, that goes to what we talked about earlier, this aspect of hospitals being really attuned to the fact that their clinical staff are hurting, right? Like they are they are hurting and they actually need to, um, they need to have some attention, right? Because of all the things that have been gone through. So Hoke has done a lot in this space um, and has really looked at this partnership as what are ways that VR therapies, you know, could actually even have potential far beyond COVID. So, you know, the platform itself was not just about COVID, it was about helping frontline workers reduce chronic stress, um, develop new coping skills. And then they essentially also extended this into you know, the patient care side and have been doing some work in that space for a while. So they also partnered with this company to create this program called Nurture, which is designed specifically for expectant mothers. Um, and so actually kind of like, you know, VR therapies that help in the months, in the weeks leading up to birth and even afterwards as well to help address issues around postpartum. So there's just some really cool stuff happening in this space. And I think it's easy it's easy to think about VR and be like, oh, gaming, you know, like, <laughs> which is very cool for gaming, obviously, hard to argue with that. Uh, but there is actually over 5,000 studies that showcase VR's ability to diminish pain because of the way it kind of changes the way your brain is working, steady nerves, boosts mental health all without a trained clinician. Um, and there's a lot of research in this space for, for any folks who are interested and want to check it out coming out of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA. Um, they have actually treated several thousand patients with immersive therapeutics and have a ton of data on its efficacy. And I think that this is probably going to be a space that there'll be a lot more conversations in the mental health realm in the coming years. VR is so interesting. I think I'm at personally the peak of the hype cycle. <laughs> With VR, I, I I think there's so many applications that we have not even gotten into, and I remember seeing this a little bit just from working within the VA healthcare system. With I know the VA has been using it as trying to see if it's a good treatment for PTSD by trying to yeah. like relive relive experiences. Um, and I think one of the things that was holding it back is VR was very inaccessible for, you know, a long yep. time. Uh, but now, I mean, anyone can go, I mean, pretty much anyone can go to the store and pick up a VR headset for a couple hundred bucks. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's become something that's extremely accessible. And, I, and and like you said, I think people think of it as games, but it's really interesting how when you put on the headset, even if it's like cartoony, your mind just thinks that you're there. Your mind just exactly. says, oh, okay, I'm in a I'm in a cartoon gas station. All right, this is my reality now. And you just kind of accept. I've seen people fall over because they were trying to lean on a virtual countertop. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, even outside, I mean, we could take this way far. I think we could do a whole thing about VR. Also, yeah. how, how salty do you think Chris Bevelo is that we are talking about VR 
when he's not here. Without him here, yes. I know he's going to listen and he's going to be angry. But then to your point, we should do a whole other episode on it. And he will be back to host that one. I guarantee. Yeah. He can be host and guest. He can just monologue about VR for exactly. several hours. <laughs> exactly. Maybe we, should, maybe we should have a VR podcast. Do you think we can do that? Is All that the options. Thing? The world is our oyster, Brennan. Gretchen, can we Google this? <laughs> it can't cross-compete. It has to be on the new normal. Ugh, fine. <laughs> we, call, we call it the, the, the new normal. There you virtual, go. Virtual normal. Hot there topic. you go. Um, Shannon, anything else you, you see interesting going on here in this space? Any, any parting thoughts? No, I mean, I, I guess maybe the only parting thought is... I think we're just at the beginning of really addressing this. There have been the wake-up calls. There's money pouring into behavioral health from a from a venture-funded digital health perspective, um, and I, I do think I do feel optimistic about the space. You know, you kind of look at it, and in many ways, it's it's incredibly sobering. Not just because of lives lost, the impact had, but from a business model perspective, you just kind of look at it over the past 10 years and it's not really clear how and where we can make some change in a way that, you know, there's enough folks who are kind of motivated to do so. And I think that that is changing. So that's my parting words. I, I think there's a lot of innovation ahead and it'll be really exciting to be a part of. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, you know, something we talked about several times is just the the role that self-insured employers are are having here and just taking on solution after solution because like you know, like every everybody else carrying risk they are they are feeling it and probably seeing the direct impacts that actually yeah. more directly addressing this and be more proactive about this can have yeah absolutely uh, gretchen what's the, what's the question situation you're fresh out of questions sorry fresh out of questions great that's Sh shannon we're so good no questions. We, we've resolved everybody's questions that's right. in their lives forever. Um, all right. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks again, Shannon, for joining us. And as always, thank you to Gretchen for making everything work okay. And please, please let us know if there's something else you'd like us to cover aside from VR by posting in the, in the chat tool or by shooting us an email at nonormal at thinkrevivehealth.com. And remember to visit thinkrevivehealth.com slash no-normal for a recording of today's episode, past episodes, and a glimpse into some future guests. And subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to podcasts on. And until next week, good luck out there in the new normal.